Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 125 on February 13th, 2019, the day before St. Valentine's Day, or as my wife and I like to call that day, Amateur Day. And we are joining you, or I'm joining you live from Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school whose offices are nuzzled into the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, is Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening. Dr. Fryer, how are you this evening? Good evening. I am well and glad to be glad to be joining. And uh, it's it's an exciting time. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it is an exciting time. So lots of interesting stuff going on in both of our worlds. And as always, I am super thrilled to be able to spend an hour with you each week talking through the news and looking at what's going on in the larger technology world. And for those of you new to the EdTech situation, first, welcome to our humble podcast. We hope you find some value in our hourly conversation each week. But we take news headlines from the technology arena and kind of take a look at them from a school education, student, teacher, administrator standpoint to try to find some uh, meaning in all of the massive changes that are occurring in our world due to technology. You can find all the links we discuss at our website, edtechsr.com. And as always, um, you are absolutely welcome to join us live. You can just go to our um, Twitter channel, edtechsr is our Twitter handle, and we broadcast there when we are out and live, and we usually have folks sitting in our chat room um, that can answer questions or pose us questions, and hopefully you're going to meet our moderator, Peggy, who is uh, a weekly uh, viewer of our podcast. So, Wes, I know that um, uh, you've had a busy week or so. Is there a particular place you'd like to start tonight? I have a theory where you might start, but... Ah, okay. Well, actually, I, yeah, I didn't didn't put in too many too many articles. I, some of the ones I put in were a little a little quick. Um, I do I definitely want to talk talk more about podcasting and, and Spotify. Um, I'll just do a fast one, which is just that if you are a Flickr user and you have not gone pro, you have another month um, in order to go ahead and, and pay that or have someone else pay your your Flick, Flickr Pro. Payment. Um, Ars Technica on February 7th says Flickr gives free accounts a few more days to save their pictures from destruction. And if you're not aware of what's going on, um, Flickr was purchased by SmugMug a number of months ago. And I think that was a really great move. Uh, Flickr is one of the original Web 2.0 platforms that was just really fantastic for networking and has developed into an incredible archive, especially uh, with all of the Creative Commons licensed photos that are there. And so SmugMug decided that they are going to maintain all of the Creative Commons licensed images, regardless of people's status as a pro user or not. Um, you know, prior to the announcement, you couldn't just like say, hey, I'm going to upload, you know, change all my pictures to Creative Commons and get them saved. So if you had done that before they made the announcement, you could do that. But anyway, there's a little bit more time uh, and I continue to, to love Flickr. Um, I was just using Google Photos well, I was trying to use Google Photos actually to find a picture of our dog. So unfortunately, face recognition does not yet work with canines on Google Photos, although 
Actually, know. so that's interesting you should mention that because it, I think it does. Because um, so uh, some of you that listen, I may be on uh, Facebook or uh, Instagram folks with me. Our beloved dog Berkeley passed away a couple of weeks ago after um, a brief illness very late in her life. She's a very old dog probably 14, maybe 15. And we had um, 13 wonderful years with that sweet dog. But um, I can go into Google photos and type the name Berkeley. And it recognizes, it recognizes pictures of her as opposed to just dogs. That's pretty cool. Now, is that because you think you tagged them? Um, At some point I tagged Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, Sniffed uh, out other, other dogs. But it did find other ones. Oh, that's awesome. I was, anyway, I, I, I did find some on Flickr, but that was because I, you know, put a a dog name in a title. So anyway, uh, Flickr is great. So glad that it's living on. And, you know, as is the case with any kinds of web tools, if, if we're not the product and, and having our data monetized as part of the surveillance state model, um, you know, we need to find ways to pay and consumers need to find ways, uh, companies need to find ways to monetize so that they can stay afloat and not go the way of, uh, uh, posturous and these other, you know, wonderful tools that have gone to the web 2.0 graveyard. Uh, let me ask you this, Wes, I, and I know how big of a Flickr user you are. Are you going to pay for a pro account? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I have and, and, uh, paid for one for my wife as well. If you don't, um, you, you basically are going to lose all, but, I think it's, I don't think it's a uh, size of, of photos. It's just number of images. Right. Remember if you get to keep 300 or a thousand or what, but anyway, you're going to, I guess I should look at the article again. Um, yeah, a thousand is the, is the cap. So everything beyond that's going to, to be toast. So I still use Flickr images all the time in blog posts. Yep. Um, I really like Unsplash, but there's a great tool called Image Coder, which doesn't have an E at the, uh, ER at the end. It's just an R. Um, but I, I use that embed code. Um, honestly, I don't know how that, how that affects. I've, I've not moved on my WordPress sites over to, um, to SSL and, and secure. And I, th- I think you have to, you're supposed to have your images all coming from one site. Anyway, um, done that for a long time. And I think that probably is part of the reason why my WordPress installation isn't just, you know, ridiculous because it's like over 5,000 posts or something since 2005, but not a lot of images that I have hosted myself. I am embedding them from other people who have generously, you know, openly licensed their content and and allowed for that kind of reuse, which incidentally is still a phenomenal intellectual property lesson for students and, you know, helping them understand uh, what it means to have public domain image use or, you know, rights to, to content, uh, what Creative Commons is and then how they can use that themselves for their publishing. So there's your right. connection to digital literacy in the classroom sure. if you haven't introduced students to those things. Well, and you mentioned Unsplash West, which is a great uh, a website that uh, has a lot of high quality images that can be used in, in projects without the worry of copyright. And there are uh, now dozens of sites that, that have similar type libraries to Unsplash. And that's different than 10 years ago, right? Like if you were looking for uh, a large troves of images that have open or or free licensing, uh, Flickr was really the best place to do that and had a great search engine. And, um, you know, it's, it, it is good news that they're going to allow Creative Commons licensed photos to not count towards the thousand photos. Uh, and I think those were ones that were previously, um, if I remember correctly, that... Um, it's ones they'd previously marked in that way that I don't think that's new, maybe new images. 
Yeah, any oh, photo okay. uploaded before November 1st, 2018 and licensed with a Creative Commons license will not be counted against the 1,000 picture limit. So, right. um, you know, and that means that, you know, the 34 million images, I think the last time I looked, that are Creative Commonsly licensed on the website will will stay there for, you know, the um, at least foreseeable future. But, yeah, big change. And, you know, we've talked about this a couple times in the podcast. Flickr was his own thing, then purchased by Yahoo. Then when Yahoo, once Myers took over Yahoo, there was a, a upswelling from the Flickr community in an attempt to get her attention to try to make Flickr um, kind of relevant again. It's not that it was not relevant. It's just that it had been surpassed by other ways of archiving your photos. Google Photos is my uh, preferred one now for that reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, so let's hope Smug Mug, which has its own very, very, very dedicated community of users, uh, can, can bring some life into that wonderful tool. Absolutely. Okay. Another piece of breaking news, uh, this morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, NASA announced that the Mars Opportunity Rover is being put to rest. They're considering it dead now. And for those of you unaware of, of the Opportunity Rover, this is a 14 year old project that was supposed to last 90 days. It was designed to, uh, uh, be on or be, to send signals back for 90 days, including some testing and some photos. Um, and it's lasted the last Last 14 years, and in summer 2018, it sent a, a signal saying that it was low on power and cold, and so it was going to go into a low power mode, which kind of waits for uh, the sun to shine, so it could use its solar um, uh, uh, solar cells to try to recharge its battery and warm back up again, so it can continue its uh, roving. And that was the last they heard from um, the Mars opportunity. Rover, and I've heard so many, heard and read so many great stories about this in the last 72 hours. There was an amazing NPR story last night where people were a little choked up. Actually, the reporter, or the reporter um, that they were talking to, was a media person, I think, from from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that was a little choked up and um, kept referring to the rover as a her. And there is an area that the person talked about that was the heart of. Um, the rover, which was a small a package of sensitive electronics that was very protected from the elements internally, that had its own uh, heating system, and they were going to try one more time. They did it out, uh, overnight last night. They send the last um, uh, commands to the rover to an attempt to get it to just ping, right, to just say it's it's available or it's there, and they were hoping that that was the last shot. They've been trying to do this since last June, and at 11 a.m. this morning, they declared, 11 a.m. Pacific time this morning, they declared that um, that uh, the project is considered completed. That's how they decide to use that, and it spent, um, you know, better part of a decade and a half um, uh, going around, uh, it, it, it uh, drove around 28 miles on the surface, um, it had sent back countless numbers of interesting images. It had sent back an extraordinary trove of scientific data. And the fact that it was designed to last 90 days and yet, uh, you know, crested 14 years before it ultimately stopped sending signals back, I think is a, a pretty incredible uh, tale of, of uh, human ingenuity. So, um, I, Wes, I know you happen to be a space and NASA buff. I'm assuming this was sad news to you as well. Yeah, definitely. We actually watched uh, the Matt Damon uh, Mars movie, um, uh, which is the name is evading me. Um, I think over the holidays, and it is—it's just—it's incredible. I mean, I, I loved 
sharing, uh, you know, when I went back in the classroom a few years ago, um, you know, curiosity links, I called them uh, with students and, and, you know, this rover, I mean, you know, NASA, not NASA, the uh, Chinese space agency just landed a rover on the far side of the moon. Um, what over the, over the holidays, um, it, it's, it's incredible. And the ways in which robotics has matured and, you know, it's, it's, it's not just for Legos anymore. I mean, it, it never has been, but it's just our, our son actually at uh, the Colorado School of Mines yesterday was at a job fair and this is for internships and this is his junior year. So this is a pretty big deal, you know, for him to try to, you know, get an internship and maybe with a company that I'll work with. And um, pretty much he talked to, I think, eight different companies and, and all of them were involved in, in robotics or uh, coding. And I mean, there was a UAV company he talked with. So anyway, I just, I just think it's great. There's so many, you know, wonderful opportunities for students to have their imaginations, uh, in, you know, inspired by what is going on and the work at NASA is, is vital. Um, and hey, I, I think it probably is a good idea for us to become a multiplanetary species. You know, we've had, I think, six, uh, you know, species ending events, whatever, whatever they call them. I mean, that's, you know, Ar Armageddon type. I don't know. There's a, there's a word for that. Right. But we've, you know, just like like the uh, the asteroid that hit the Yucatan that we think, you know, did, did away with the dinosaurs. Um, yeah. I mean, these things happen over millions of years. So who knows? We may be here for thousands and thousands of years and uh, we will be transformed into a different species, I predict, probably by technology. But anyway, it is a, a very important aspiration to be moving beyond the planet. And it is sad to see this happen, but it's also a reminder of just Mother Nature, because I think it's basically the dust storm that covered up the solar panels and led to the death of curiosity, but certainly out, outlived its predicted lifespan. So that's great. Yep. And um, exciting news that I know that NASA continues to work on additional ways to send um, uh, vehicles to Mars for additional exploration. And uh, there's been a lot of interesting articles related to that in the last 72 hours as well. Definitely. Okay. Uh, Wes, where to next, sir? Uh, let's do a little privacy uh, talk. Uh, this is not a normal source for me, but this is from Times of Israel on February 7th. Israel needs new laws to limit Intel services powers to eavesdrop online. I thought this was just fascinating uh, because these researchers, um, which is working for a group called the Israel Democracy Institute, is pointing out that really there aren't any limits on what they can do in Israel. And so where in the United States, you are going to need to have probable cause. You're, you know, you're going to need to, you know, talk to a judge. There's going to be some legal protections. Um, basically in Israel, you're going to be able to do just about anything you want with data for as long as you want. And so the article begins talking about the Edward Snowden disclosures in 2013 and the debate over rights to privacy and implications for surveillance. And, um, you know, when we've talked about Jamal Khashoggi and, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that uh, have happened with police powers and hacking and, and surveillance. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it is, by all reports, uh, Israeli technology that allowed for um, the phone, a phone hack that was, that was tied to, um, what the Saudi Arabian government, you know, did, uh, these, these police powers, I think that, uh, we need some limits on those kinds of things. So what, what do you think, Jason, would you, would you prefer that the U S kind of just mirror Israel's free for all on, uh, whatever, 
you know, folks want to do with data? Should we should we be moving to the Israeli privacy paradigm? Well, that's a really interesting segue to bring in a second article that I think helps provide a second side to this. So uh, today's CNET reports that uh, there has been a recent report by Watchdogs, the the General Accounting Office. Uh, that uh, apparently that despite the fact we have a number of, you know, specific rules, and you mentioned a couple of the notions of uh, due process and uh, constitutional protections for our data, not necessarily, you know, our private data, but in context of things like laws we may, may or may not be breaking, there is a lot of privacy built into our Constitution, even though the right to privacy itself doesn't appear anywhere in that document. And General Accounting Office says that that what is basically happening right now is the federal government's um, investigation and engagement over privacy issues has meant that we don't actually enforce any of these uh, any of these rules. And at best, we usually will slap a company on um uh, the wrist, uh, we will then uh, engage in a negotiation for what's usually referred to as a consent decree, which is a basically you'll stop doing this. And very rarely, if ever, is there anything of real consequence um, uh, uh, that happens to the companies that violate our privacy. And so the settlement agreements, uh, 101 of them, um, since 2009 between the Federal Trade Commission and companies that have uh, been found uh, sticking um, uh, their their digital noses where they don't belong in violation of U.S. privacy laws, uh, they, they've got away with it without any fines at all. And so what's interesting about what you're saying, Wes, is that I don't know what's worse, right? Is it worse to have no laws to do this where the government has nearly unlimited control. And, you know, we, I wouldn't seek to debate the merits of what uh, Israel does because I think that they probably have a, uh, well, they have a, a longstanding constitution that's very different than most other countries simply because of, 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 of the uh, genesis of their existence, right? But then on the other side of it is that we have this perception of privacy with rules and things that have, uh, go back to constitutional protections that aren't really enforced at all. And even if you do, uh, uh, somehow violate uh, one of these rules, and the, the worst that happens to you is a finger wag and a promise not to do it again. So I think there's there's a real there's a real moment here, um, and then maybe to pull in a third article that's also uh, from uh, this week's news. Uh, there was an excellent article from the New York Times on February eighth that talked about that despite the fact that the tech correction, which is something we talk about here often in the podcast, is happening, this notion that we're starting to scale back on technology, right, or we're going to question at least our our engagement with technology and how technology impacts us as humans, despite the tech correction. Despite the fact that actually a lot of people I know are they're either getting off of Facebook completely or they're they're changing their engagement with that platform, right? They're um, not logging in. They're doing it once a week, once a month, once every couple months instead of you know once an hour. Um, despite all of that, uh, profits are up, income is up, revenue is up at major technology companies. And even though you're hearing a lot of rhetoric out of these companies about changing practices and re-engaging the way they, they utilize their systems and the way they treat data, privacy, humans in this process. Despite all that, um, uh, they're increasing their income. So it's a big thing here, right? Like it's it's a, a, a big cloud of, of, of thinking and thoughts, and then you could start pulling in the impact on democracy and those pieces. But we're obviously at the precipice of something big. I just... 
I, I can't wrap my brain around how it resolves itself. I actually joined Reddit uh, this last week, and it's interesting. I I posted a, an article that I had written on my blog of why you shouldn't quit Facebook and, and Twitter into the privacy Reddit, which is really not a very sympathetic forum for <laughs> Those talking about why privacy, you know, you know, a cost benefit analysis may, may mean that you, you stay on Facebook. Um, I think that, you know, net, the network effects that that's such an important economic concept. In fact, there's, let's, let's link back to school, right? If, if we're not talking with students and helping them understand network effects, then we're really not understanding the modern economy. And I don't, don't just say the modern digital economy. Let's just say the modern economy, right? Because the degree to which, you know, Amazon is just a tremendously huge player and they're just going to continue to grow, right? In healthcare and these other things, we may talk about Eero and that purchase that was, you know, uh, it's just, it's frustrating to see, you know, relatively small companies that are being successful, you know, just, just being eaten by, by the bigger fish. Um, and so, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the surveillance state, this, this new book that's, that's come out and just this whole concept. And um, <laughs> the, we've, we really need to be looking at, at the ideas of democracy and, and governance and, you know, the ways in which technology plays into this. And I just think there's so much to be figured out um, and things are moving so quickly. So I think you're right. If if anybody says they know how all this is going to play out, they are, you know, well, whatever. They're 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 making a prediction, but they're probably they're probably not accurate. What what is happening now, and we can say with with confidence, just because it's a fact, is that Europe really is leading a lot of this. Um, you know, there's dangers of a fractured internet and, and, you know, in fact, there's, well, we could segue to this article. There's a, uh, a Cisco article. Uh, this is from Ars Technica on February 7th. Cisco, like Apple and other tech giants now wants new federal privacy law. And interestingly, this article points out that, that Cisco is afraid of what they call legal fracturing. And that is that every state is going to pass different laws and we're going to have just this real confusing, morass of of legislation and i mean we're risking that internationally you know because if if europe you know is going to require certain things i mean are, you know is google or or is, is amazon or these different companies going to you know just turn off their services to that to that uh um, you know nation it, it's really a wild west and i think that I, I still, we've said this before, you know, helping students understand the importance of privacy and the need to advocate for it is, is important. Um, and I think we need to identify those groups that are fighting for this, you know, the EFF, uh, and others that are, are coming together as individuals. We're not going to probably make that much of an impact, but if we put our voices together and some of our money, you know, with other groups that are going to lobby and, you know, really try to advance, uh, causes, you know, there, that's, that's where we're going to have uh, a bigger impact. So I think it's, um, unfortunate that we're not ha seeing that kind of privacy enforcement, but it's probably also a reflection of our broader political culture, which I think has just downplayed the value of regulation for a long time and, and, you know, played up this idea that, you know, it's back to the Reagan years, government's evil, right? You just, you know, less government is better. Um, and so, I, I think we need to just have a, a, a better and healthier perspective on how how regulation is important, and you don't just want to you know leave the right. market to its own whims, you know, because we are in some would argue a new gilded age, 
um, where we are in need of, of some antitrust legislation and, and some pushback from that pendulum swinging so far to, to a laissez-faire approach and, and getting back to, hey, let's have some reasonable regulations so that, you know, robber barons don't, you know, rule the entire universe and, and individuals as well as even groups don't have any recourse to, you know, the new JP Morgan of the 21st century. Absolutely. Let's see. Um, let's do some kind of techie techie news. I am going to cover some Chrome stuff uh, and my, or Chrome and, and Google stuff. First and foremost, very exciting news for those in the Chrome archi- Chrome world. Uh, I am a primary Chrome OS person now. Um, virtual desks are coming to Chrome OS, and there's an early glimpse video available from nine to five Google today. And for those of you that uh, you may or may not use this functionality on. Windows or on Mac, but uh, this started off on, on, on Mac OS and then Windows 10 brought this functionality and it's actually one of the reasons why I found Windows 10 to be palatable coming from the Mac platform. I love using what's referred to as virtual desktops or multiple desktops and in essence what uh, this is is it allows you to create a desktop environment and then create a second desktop environment that you can flip back and forth from in order for me it's, it was always a kind of a means of productivity. I could keep a set of tools on desktop one, a different set of tools on desktop two, and then flip back and forth. And something I've really missed when I'm on my Chromebook or, or or I plug my Chromebook into a desktop docking station is that, especially at work, I like to be able to keep a couple of different projects going at the same time that maybe have different sets of windows, different tools open, and you start to get a little crowded after a while if you're not using virtual desktops. And in fact, um, especially on the Mac, there's a very elegant gesture on a track pad or a magic pad where you can take uh, four fingers and swipe over to the other desktop. Uh, in fact, Wes, uh, one of the fir- first times I met him face-to-face called those Jedi moves, right, that you can use <laughs> your fingers to uh, do magic things uh, on the platform. But uh, 9 to 5 Google was also uh, reported on Chrome Unboxed that virtual desktops are almost here, and they appear to be coming in, um, I think, Chrome version 75. Right now, it's we're on 72. Um, and uh, the super unstable dev is on 74, so we're pretty close to having an experiment on Chrome virtual desktops. Um, other quick bits, uh, Chrome uh, it has rolled out a couple of, of official themes. This is another one that I, I honestly don't understand why more people don't do this because I know how much people like to customize, but there are... Um, um, uh, official themes from Google that you can download, and uh, there's always been three or four of them. They've added a couple of new ones, including what's called the black and white theme on Google. It's just a way of kind of changing the look of your browser, and uh, I agree with Robbie Payne at Chrome Unboxed that the new black and white theme is quite beautiful, and in fact, it's what is dominating my background. Um, if you like to customize your computer, having official themes from, from Google is great because you know there's no mucky code in there or something that uh, can muck with your systems. So that's something that is uh, super great for other uh, for other Chrome OS users. And one other uh, quick Chrome bit is that native PDF annotation for Chromebooks is live now in the dev channel, which is an extraordinary advancement um, to Chrome OS. Um, again, I am a Pixelbook user. It is the nicest computer I've ever owned um, and in a lot of ways has become uh, my go-to. I don't 
really flip around computers much anymore with my, my Pixelbook. It has a great tablet mode, but something I've always found quite wanting on Chrome OS is an inability to take documents, annotate, or for me, signing a PDF. There's apps that do it, websites that do it, but they're not very elegant. Um, and there is the P, there is a PDF reader in built into Chrome OS. This takes the native PDF reader and adds an annotation component to it that you can take uh, your finger or a stylus, or if you have an official stylus, in my case, I use uh, one of the compatible Lenovo Styli, 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 um, uh, with my uh, Pixelbook and um, it's it's a very nice experience, but adding that ability to take a PDF annotate it in that form factor is really quite amazing. So, anything there tempt you, Wes? Uh, I just you know I think the ability to readily take notes, mark stuff up, uh, have it saved to the cloud, share it with others. Um, we have huge needs for this. Um, I've had a chance um, teaching you know Sunday school and having a chance just to play a little bit with my iPad and my Apple Pencil with the the Notes app, learning a little bit more about that kind of annotation. <clears throat> we have the the Chrome the Lenovo 300e Chromebooks uh, at school. We've got a, a couple carts of those, and that's one of the ones that has the the flippable screen, and you can use a regular number two pencil to be able to draw on that. Um, I actually don't know if any of our faculty have done a lot of extensive work with that, but I think it's just hugely uh, important that that technology, you know, matures. And as we've seen with a bunch of things that Apple does, you know, Apple does that really well. I mean, the bar that they've set with the Apple Pencil and now the Apple Pencil 2, it's phenomenal as far as how uh, smooth and natural the the writing and the drawing experience is. So. Glad to see this marching forward and hopefully kind of like smartphones, right? We've seen the, um, well, it's really a lack of differentiation in the smartphone market because, you know, cameras are so good and, and apps are, are so similar in terms of their capabilities. I, I really think, you know, we're kind of at, I don't know if it's peak smartphone, but, you know, that's it, just where we're, we're waiting for the next innovation, whether that's going to be, you know, glasses or some some way to, to have projection, you know, on, in your field of vision rather than just on, you know, a, a a hand-sized piece of glass that you put in your pocket or your purse. So it's important to to see those things. Um, I will add a couple other articles that I put into that same category just under Google. Um, There was a Verge article on February 11th pointing out that right-clicking in Gmail is about to get a whole lot more useful. And this may seem like a small thing, but, you know, email and processing email and being able to do that efficiently is really an important skill of our modern communication age. I don't think there's any way um, any of us can professionally, you know, get away from from email. And so um, you uh, may or may not see that in your uh, enterprise G Suite. Um, they are uh, or they have been, you know, rolling, rolling that out, but I'm, I'm seeing, um, more options here in my just you know, consumer level, um, moving, moving it between tabs, archiving it, moving as red delete. It's, so that, that may or may not transform your workflow. I've definitely tried to use apps that with swipes and these different kinds of, of, uh, you know, Jedi moves, as you said, that are going to, let me process that faster. But anyway, that was a small thing. And then the last thing is, remember, Google Plus is going away for consumers. So this isn't an article. It's just a, a support link. Uh, but it's the instructions of how to download all of your Google Plus data. And I think that it was April that they were originally doing that. And then there was another breach. And and so the date was moved up. Um, and so, yeah, it still says April 2nd. Um, 
So no other Google products are going to be shut down. So Gmail, Google Photos, Google Drive, uh, but it's just strictly Google Plus. So I don't know if anybody, J- Jason, do you, do you consider yourself to have made incredible, just thoughtful and, and perhaps earth changing, you know, contributions to the global conversation only on Google Plus? And so that's going to make the preservation of your Google Plus data probably your top priority in the next you know, 24 to 48 hours. I'm downloading it right now, Wes, uh, on that notion. It's, it's funny as you mentioned that. And I think we talked about Google Plus dying, um, when, when, when this was headlines. And I'd actually recently had the opportunity. I'm starting to, uh, finish up presentations I'm working on for the Northwest Council of Computer Education Conference in Seattle, which will be, um, uh, two weeks from now. I'll be in fabulous Seattle, Washington for that conference. And, um, is it, uh, NCC is where I always break new presentations and, uh, they're always my, my first shot at, uh, at, at, at delivering thoughts to, um, uh, uh, teachers there. And I actually did a presentation on Google Plus in 2012 at NCCE. It was February 28th, 2012. And the reason why I mentioned that is because I came across those slides lately. Um, interestingly enough, Wes, you make an appearance in those slides because I showed off the plus one functionality, which when that first rolled out and I actually had had put a plus one on a blog post of yours and took screenshots of that, which I find to be uh, pretty interesting. But the thing that I want to point out was that in that presentation, I had said that I, I, I really like Google Plus. Google Plus was smart. Google Plus was was nuanced. It was probably a teacher friendly tool, right? Because you could create a social media presence that uh, you know, changed depending on how your relationship was with someone. But I said two things. The first one was I said, right now, I think it's too complex for the average user. And the second thing was was that if anything survives from Google Google Plus, or like if it doesn't catch on, the only thing that will survive is Google Hangouts. And and I was correct, as it turns out, because I knew that uh, once Google put their finger in um, the whole notion of um, um, uh, video conferencing, that there was no way for them to, 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 to go back from that. Right. And to be honest, I mean, although I have access to industrial tools as part of my day job, including Zoom, which is my uh, our, our current the University of Montana has a broad Zoom license of which I have access to. And Zoom is great. It's an excellent video conferencing solution. It plugs right into uh, 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 high end video conferencing equipment if you'd like to to bring in callers from the outside to do that. You used to have to use some pretty fancy software to make that happen. That's just built into Zoom now. But what's interesting about that is that I could really do everything I do video conference-wise on Google Hangouts. It would be just fine. So uh, I thought that was an interesting piece. But yes, I did click on the link, Wes, and I'm going to download. I can't even fathom what's on there, to be honest, and maybe it's going to be a little embarrassing. Um, what was the name? Do you remember that, the Google, and now I'm trying to remember the name of the tool. There was a, a, a Google service, social networking kind of thing where wave. Yeah, no, it wasn't wave. It was, it's like a status thing, like a little one liners, right? Hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of of the service, but um, when it died, I took it. It it was kind of Twitter like, right? Like you, you talk about what your status was or whatever it was. It wasn't around for that long, but I ended up, uh, you know, doing the Google takeout and taking that data out. And I came across that file recently in Google Drive, and it was hilarious, right? Like, you know, what was I thinking on, you know, um, January 9th, uh, 2007? So, like, that sort of stuff. So I, I'll be curious to download that file. Terrifying, scary. 
Absolutely. Well, I'd like to talk a little more about podcasts and about sure. yes. Spotify. Uh, shout out to the Twit This Week in Tech podcast, which my podcasting, you know, habits very widely, but just lately I've been listening probably every week to most of, of the Twit podcast. Actually, I listened to their uh, 2018 year in review, which is a monster podcast. It's like almost four hours, I think. Um, but it was fantastic and uh, just great highlights. So anyway, this is an article that they had linked in their most recent show. It's from a website called Stratechery, which is, I think, a play on strategy and technology from February 7th. And it's called Spotify's Podcast Aggregation Play. And so as they talked about that on the episode, one of the things that they, they talked about, Leo did, that I totally agree with is, I mean, I don't want to see Spotify kill podcasting. One, you know, as we've talked about last week, uh, Spotify has purchased two real big players in the podcasting world. And as this article points out, they're very, very different. Um, they post, they, um, bought Gimlet Media, which I think has around 25 different shows and is very NPR-esque in terms of its, its formats and, and the way that, most of those sound. And then also Anchor, which is a podcast creation platform and a phenomenal creation platform. And, and so, um, part of this article talks about, you know, monetization and, and Spotify's profits. And, you know, they're, they're making a big bet here because they have purchased, you know, these two different, uh, companies for, I don't know what the combined number of, of millions of dollars is, but it's, it's gigantic. So, you know, when a company does that, they are expected to, you know, monetize that and get that amount of money back in, uh, in spades because, you know, it's going to be this phenomenal, you know, web company. And so is it going to become by original content? I mean, we, we don't have, and, and through our, uh, machine learning and the ability to take audio and make it searchable, convert it to text and make it searchable. You know, we don't have an ad sense for podcasting yet. And, right. and that's probably one, a, a pretty big development in terms of the monetization of the web. And, you know, of course, I don't think ads made, made any educators or educational bloggers, you know, quit their day jobs and, and, uh, you know, get, get filthy rich. But, it's it's really interesting how different the music industry is to the podcasting industry. You know, wondering what does this mean for the future of podcasting? Um, I, as they pointed out, too, in that Twit podcast, um, Apple did a nice job really amplifying podcasts, but not trying to take control of it, right? You you really want podcasts to continue to live on the open web, um, as as this podcast does, and, and hopefully almost all podcasts do. I mean, unless you have a walled garden and you've got members only content and a password and whatever, you know, podcasts can be listened to on any kind of pod catching software. Now they can be listened to on different kinds of smart assistants. Um, you know, and so this, this is just a very uh, good article with the analysis that they're, that they're putting here and, um, you know, trying to, you know, consider what Spotify is, is going to try and do. And, and hopefully what they're going to do is going to help podcasting. It's not going to, you know, diminish the, uh, the open nature of it. Um, but I do think that it's ripe for transformation and for continued innovation. Um, it is so much easier, right, for us to make, create this podcast and just, you know, sit down for an hour on Wednesday nights. Um, if, if Jason and I were to try to, you know, which we, maybe we should at some point, Jason, you know, write some articles together, or, you know, be, be doing some, some formal writing. Um, right. the time that's required for that is just is considerable. So have yeah. you had any additional thoughts about Spotify's play with, uh, anchor and, uh, uh, Gimlet? 
Yeah, I did listen to the co-founders uh, talk to, um, I think it was Peter Kafka at uh, um, at Recode. I, I can't remember where I listened to it. And I, and I should, uh, I, I have some friends that, that join me in being big um, podcasting fans. It's just such a great content venue. And, and I really do think there's something in, in it from the standpoint of, of, of being an interesting play for kids to, to create, uh, content, uh, both creating content in the classroom and utilizing the extraordinary trove of content available, um, in classrooms. But, um, uh, one of the interviews was the day after, actually it was the day of the, um, the purchase was announced. And, you know, there were some hard hitting questions about was this about returning money to the venture capitalists they really raised 20 something million dollars um to that they actually had a lot of people that invested small amounts of money early on in in a in a scheme as part of the 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 their startup phase that's going to get return on investment they had like four or five hundred smaller investors that are going to get a apparently a pretty healthy uh, return on investment uh, that helped invest early. In fact, I considered that. And I, it, frankly, in fact, I'm going to write myself a note. I was going to look to see if I did actually give a little bit of money because I loved, I loved startup. I was a big fan of the podcast. And um, uh, when that uh, was happening, it was a, a, a really great, um, a great distraction. I think that was in 2015, if I remember correctly, which was the year I had my kidney transplant. And so I had some time to burn on to listen to that podcast. But the one thing that I, I am very uh, excited to read this uh, strategy, that word, uh, article a little more deeply. But the thing that I've heard from almost every techie analysis of this is that this is probably really great news. It's probably bad news if a lot of the, the podcasts end up behind a firewall, even though I'm a Spotify a user and I'm a purchaser of Spotify services. I would prefer to use my own podcast app for that. I have a great podcast app. I'm a pocket cast guy. It's, it's a, a part of my, my uh, kind of listen flow, if you will. But the thing that is interesting about Spotify is that I find their podcast discovery and their podcast management interface to be terrible. And um, that's where and that's part of the reason why uh, podcasts really have been tough to monetize and tough to get good analytics on is that, um, you know, to, to be honest, uh, because they're openly available and because there's no standard for keeping track of downloads uh, other than server downloads, but downloads and how much is listened to and which parts are listened to and full shows or partial shows or a little bit of shows are listened to. That's extraordinary data. Spotify could probably help with that. But only that's only going to be useful if you know podcasts are kept only in Spotify, right? Which exactly, you exactly. Know, that, that's the problem. So yep. you know, so uh, you know, I, I think Wes and I would both probably be super interested, you know, in data related to our podcast. Obviously, we're you know we we haven't quit our day jobs yet. I our 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 audience is a highly uh, long tail audience, right? The folks that listen to us, we know people do listen. People are downloading. We get tweets. Uh, we hear about it. We ended up in some top 10 list at the end of last year of, 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 uh, EdTech podcast. That's great. Thank you for listening. And hey, hey, didn't, uh, Montana State University, well, that was just our end of year, right? I yeah. think they, they actually played that on the radio, on the regular radio. That was before yeah. we, we'd hit the EdTech SR. Yeah. Yeah. Before we hit the small time of podcasting, <laughs> right? But I'd be really interested to hear data about, you know, do when when I start talking to people, you know, stop listening, right? Or when uh, one of us gets into a rant, which happens 
once in a while, right? Do people stop listening, right? Like that would be all extremely useful data, but we have no means of doing that the way podcasts are distributed. So it's a balance piece, right? So I'm excited to find out what happens here. I could not be happier for the founders of Gimlet because I genuinely found them to be likable people uh, during the first couple of seasons of, of startup. And to be quite frank, I like the notion of delivering high-end production public radio quality production to the podcasting world. Not every podcast needs it, right? Um, you know, not every podcast justifies it, right? There's a lot of, of podcasts that have, um, you know, relatively low production value that I think are quite valuable for what they are, right? But, um, you know, there's, there's something there that will change and evolve, and I'm really looking forward to continuing to be a fan and observing how that plays out. Awesome. Uh, let's talk about Eero. Um, huh. So I don't have a mesh router and I don't know how many of our listeners do, but the technologies now to make your home a much faster Wi-Fi experience and intelligently, you know, manage bandwidth and give priority to what you, you want. Uh, the, the, the new generation, it's not that new. It's been out for a few years of mesh routers is really, um, Awesome. And I'm still on a Apple, uh, you know, router and, and, and Apple's, you know, decided to get out of that arena. And, and I guess that's understandable, but some Apple engineers have done some pretty amazing things in the Wi-Fi space. And one of them was founding this small little company called Eero. And they've also formed a company, different Apple engineers, uh, called Ubiquity. Um, what just happened this last week is that Amazon bought Eero. And so this is in TechCrunch on February 11th. Um, I really like the Verge article on February 12th, why Amazon buying Eero feels so disappointing. Uh, and I think I, I echo most of the opinions of the author there because, you know, does every awesome tech company have to get bought by, you know, Amazon, Apple, Google, um, uh, or Microsoft? I mean, it, it is, um, there was a, a person who was doing an experiment recently, a journalist, trying to just dispense with everything that had to do with, I guess, those big five companies uh, and, and found, I think, basically it was about impossible um, because of, of their reach, pardon me, in so many different areas. So anyway, I was on the cusp, not because we just have all kinds of, of disposable income, but I've really wanted, uh, I was thinking about, you know, some Christmas money with some Amazon gift cards. You know, you're, you're going to pretty much have an outlay of about $300 from, from what I've seen to do, you know, three different, um, uh, mesh routers and, and for our two story house or whatever, that's probably what we're going to need to do. So I was going to really, you know, thinking Eero was, was the way to go, but I, I don't trust Amazon. I have not, like Jason, you know, invested in more than one smart assistant. Um, we're just, you know, using the, the Google, um, uh, what the Google home minis, I guess. Um, and you know, it's, it's the surveillance state, baby. Uh, Amazon yeah. is going to monetize this information. And, you know, what can be more detailed than every single packet that traverses your home router, you know, to go out to the Internet? And, of course, there is SSL and secure socket layer and things like that. But um, I just I found that to be a depressing play. So I was looking this uh, this week as I've had some trouble uh, sleeping a couple nights, uh, you know, back to Google to, to say, hey, this this real simple mesh router setup looks like it might it might be excellent. But then I was also looking at Ubiquity, which is a much geekier solution 
Um, but you know, like I mentioned, like like Eero was was designed and created by Apple engineers. So, Jason, is this just the way of the world? We should expect any any good product to be snatched up by by Amazon, Google, or one of these huge companies, or is, is there hope for entrepreneurs to, you know, just continue to make a, a, a modest profit and not be snatched up by the big the big fish? Well, I. The comment you made earlier, I think, is really interesting. Why does every great technology startup that's doing something interesting have to be snapped up by others? And, of course, part of what, you know, that comes down to is that I think a lot of these companies are looking to get snapped up by others, right? I I, and I, I certainly don't want to uh, prescribe any motives to the the founders and developers at Eero, but, um, you know, that's, I think that's an unfortunate part of our startup culture, right? Like, truly good ideas are awesome. Um, and in fact, uh, the, it reminds me of the, the plot line of the HBO sitcom Silicon Valley, which uh, is an excellent, excellent, excellent depiction of uh, kind of startup culture and what that looks like and pivoting and buying out and that sort of thing. Have what, you not seen... What's the show again? It's called Silicon Valley on HBO. No, huh? Have you not seen Silicon Valley, Wes? Mm, no. Right now, sir, stop this podcast and go watch uh, that. It's it's a uh, it's kind of a you know a it's a bit of a raunchy comedy in that uh, they they take on some topics that are uh, where well, the language is is it's a little it's a little um, a little risque, but it is an excellent depiction. In fact, a lot of people have talked about how really accurate it is as a uh, culture. But there is there a company that where some guys try to develop a music app that it's actually kind of a silly music app, and then uh, what he ends up uh, pivoting to is he comes up with an extraordinary compression uh, logarithm, um, and so he uh, that becomes the company, and it's called Pied Piper, and they live in a hacker's hostel, and they work at a, a, a company called Hooli, which is kind of uh, a mix between Google and Oracle, um, and it's it's just it's it's ridiculous and extraordinary and awesome. But you know, there's a lot of opportunities, and in fact, there's money flying around um, every season of that show as people try to. Uh, you know, uh, yes, they're trying to strike it rich, yes, but they're also really trying to do something interesting with um, um, interesting with 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 their with their skill and and with their ideas and, and ways to develop interesting things. So, um, but yeah, I, I I would say it's a it's scary when Amazon does this, but. A couple things. First, there is a uh, there is an Echo sitting next to me on the desk. Uh, it's a fe- it's it, it's looking at me because I think I just used its name. But um, it uh, um, it uh, quite frankly is a, a more of a Bluetooth speaker than me than anything else. And in fact, that's what I do with it is I use it as a Bluetooth speaker in in my my office. Um, but I would say that that's bad, but I use a mesh router and it's the one from Google, right? Yeah, and right. so, and you you've know, been happy I, with that, right? Extremely happy, like way better internet in my house because of it, right? Yeah. So, you know, when I, I like that it's got an app that Google supports and I like that I can log into it with my Google account and I like that that's all hooked together. And, yeah. um, you know, I, as part of this grander technology correction, I don't know if I have to start trading back on some of those things or maybe that I want things to not be owned by all the same company and work together seamlessly. But I it's again, I'll go back to my earlier phrase. I just can't wrap my brain around it. 
Yeah. Well, I'm not there thinking, oh, we got to stop, you know, using all these, but we yeah. are choosing to make digital investments, right? I mean, our schools, uh, make an investment in, in G Suite or, or Microsoft 365 or whatever, uh, these different platforms and ecosystems. And there's a, a tremendous struggle, if not a fight going on right now, uh, for the smart home, right? We've known and, and all these predictions about the internet of things. Um, I think actually we, I might look at investing not in smart bulbs, but a smart switch, right? Because just in terms of, uh, turning outside lights on or off, um, I had that light bulb, haha, uh, come on recently. You know, I think I was at Best Buy taking a look at, you know, some of the stuff they've got, you know, set up on shelves. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That could be a switch, you know, because you're trying to figure out even Christmas lights and, and things like that. How, how am I going to get those things on or off? Cause we use switches. Um, that's pretty cool. So what kinds of formats are going to predominate? You know, is, is Apple going to have a play there or not? And, you know, anyway, but the, the technologies that are going to, are they going to interoperate or is it going to be, you know, proprietary and, and all that kind of stuff? So I do, I just had this thought that it's, it's kind of interesting that the smart assistant revolution, which those of us that have them in our homes may, you know, be finding, uh, to be transformative in some ways. I think, you know, it doesn't happen every, every night, but maybe once a week we're at dinner and, and, uh, the Google assistant is asked to chime in on a particular question. Uh, this week it was about dogs sneezing. Didn't realize that my daughter had said this. We confirmed it with Google that yes, dogs uh, will sometimes sneeze intentionally to show other dogs that they are playing and they are not serious about fighting. Anyway, that was just kind of a right, you know, hey, here, here we are having dinner with, with our smart assistant, you know, who's chiming into our conversation. It's interesting that all of that is, is not happening really at, in school, in the classroom. And I know that Susan Bearden and, um, uh, uh, Bill Fitzgerald, who's with, uh, um, common sense privacy initiative. I mean, they've done some really good writing on the FERPA Sherpa. I don't know if you're familiar with that site, but about how the smart assistants are just not school friendly in terms of privacy and in terms of requirements for, you know, student information, et cetera. Uh, but it's a real important play in how technology is impacting our lives and the ways in which uh, speech recognition uh, and speech commands. Uh, I mean, I'm literally, you know, enjoying a podcast or music, especially since I've got my Spotify trial activated uh, now and I, and I hadn't been doing, you know, Google music and Apple music is not on, not on Google. I mean, every morning, you know, getting ready, it's, it's a part of my life. So interesting that that is not a part of what we're experiencing at school. And I wonder, you know, when and if smart assistants are going to play a role there. Cause it's, I just, I definitely think it's an important part of the future that we're living into. So. Anyway, that was probably a rabbit hole that was not all tied to an article. But <laughs> there you go. We're not going to charge you any extra for that tonight on the EdTech Situation Room. Well, um, I'm going to mention one more quick one, Wes, and if you've got a quick one we could do, and then we'll Geek of the Week it. Uh, Apple is holding an event on March 25th at the Steve Jobs Theater in Palo Alto, California. Uh, I'm sorry, Cupertino, California. Let me make sure that I give them the proper home. And the rumor is it's all about services. Um, it probably doesn't have a lot of impact um, on classrooms. There is a rumor that it's going to be a TV service. I can't imagine why Apple wants to get into that business because it seems pretty crowded now. And I don't know how you catch up to Amazon Prime and Netflix at this point with their original content and with other content creators 
creators leery about uh, renting their content to those services, uh, preferring their own. Um, but that's going to happen. And we've talked about this probably two or three times on, on the podcast that most analysts say that Apple really needs to increase a service component of their overall organization to continue to be profitable and to grow um, over time. And that's something that um, will be interesting. So um, March 25th and uh, reading the Apple rumor sites, which I do occasionally uh, uh, peruse, uh, there is a lot, uh, there's a lot of events planned for this year. Apple is definitely, I think, trying to, uh, keep things, uh, interesting, fresh, and, uh, live. Hopefully they will simplify the lineup for their portables and make it easier yeah, for folks here, here. who are considering that. Um, I'll just do a quick one. This is Ed Surge on February 7th. Uh, report a new cybersecurity incident strikes K-12 schools nearly every three days. And this is actually a series of quotations and graphs that Doug Levin uh, published uh, in a post called The State of K-12 Cybersecurity 2018 Year in Review. And it just highlights how incredibly hostile the computing environment is, how all of us in schools need to be very aware of phishing attacks. Um, I have mentioned, and, and I'm going to uh, hopefully, I think, get this done, that we really just need to take our email addresses off of the public web. Uh, we require our constituents to log into an internal portal where they can find our email addresses. Uh, we had a phishing incident in January where Everyone in our English department, high school, middle school, uh, was, was, you know, sent the same message and it appeared to come from that department chair. And while Google can prevent, I, I think, and does a good job out and out spoofs where someone is trying to, to just take the actual email address of the person, you know, they were following our exact syntax and then it was at Gmail. And of course, there were some people who, who clicked on that. And so depending upon the sophistication of the attacker, um, it's possible for, you know, you don't have to be clicking a link and then logging in with your Google account. Um, I, there's a, a company called No Before, and I watched one of their webinars a couple weeks ago. And, and, uh, I, I haven't found this on YouTube and I, I don't know if I can get an, an archived, Act, uh, part of, of this session that they were showing, but it, it was, it was basically where you were just on your smartphone tapping to view this post. And then if, and maybe you had to click something before this happened, but it captured the hash, uh, which is what your, your password is converted to. And then the hackers are able to put that into, uh, basically a supercomputer and, you know, figure out your password, especially if it's not a very long one. That's why we need to be using really long passwords uh, that are complex, but the length of it is even more important than the complexity of it. So anyway, a very important article highlighting one of my top three things, which is be safe, be connected, and tell stories. And number one is to be safe. So there you go. There you go. Okay, uh, Wes, what is your geek of the week, sir? Two fast ones uh, on the same note of security. Google has a excellent phishing quiz that is about uh, eight questions. And so it is, the URL is phishingquiz.withgoogle.com. This comes out of their project Jigsaw, which I had mentioned, I think on the show either last week or the week before that's, you know, attacking moderation issues and, and the ways in which the uh, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, technologies can really 
help with that. But this is free and it will help you and also teachers or others that you send it to, relatives perhaps, uh, to really pay attention to the uh, sending links or the sending email addresses um, and the links and things like that and, and hopefully get a little more savvy about identifying phishing. And then the last thing I had a, a phone call actually from Barbara Bereda, who's out in California, long time uh, web 2.0 user educator, shout out Barbara. And uh, she was asking about oral history projects and asked me of resources that can help students as they are going to be interviewing folks, maybe veterans or others. And so I found the new URL for what used to be called the great questions list. And now it is just a really long page from StoryCorps that has fantastic questions about a lot of different categories. If you're going to either interview someone about their life or you're going to interview them about someone else. And I think oral history is fantastic. And StoryCorps is a wonderful site if you're not familiar with it, with them and their free app and their app also integrates those questions. If you're having students or you yourself want to do oral history. Wonderful. Thanks, Wes. And I'd like to remind people, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this at least once, maybe twice on the podcast, but I had the opportunity recently, um, quick, uh, very, uh, funny side story. Um, our, our big screen, first big screen TV died in 2013. And, um, we actually brought a TV repair person in because we paid a lot for that first television. And, um, he said, yeah, I, I, it would be cheaper for you to go buy a, this, the same model new and yada, yada, yada. And so ever since then, this has been for like the last five years, I've like about every 10 days told my wife, I really want to buy a television. And she's like, okay, honey, go ahead. And then 10 days later, I'd be like, oh, and then she'd say, okay, honey, go ahead. And, and we, I had a tiny one that we had in our living room for a long time that had been with me when I was briefly living apart, uh, when I moved, uh, to Missoula earlier than my wife. But this week I finally purchased one and, uh, the, market had changed quite dramatically since I last looked for one. And I went to the wire cutter, which is a former independent site now owned by the New York times. They do reviews of a lot of different things and provide you expert guidance on which one is the best one. And I was able to find, well, in fact, I bought their uh, recommended television um, for $449. Uh, it's a 60 inch television. It's a TLC that I was able to pick up from Amazon. What's interesting about that though, is that, I mean, that, the, the uh, the, the choices are extraordinary, right? Hundreds of options from way more expensive to this, the way less expensive this for similar sized and featured televisions. And it just came tonight. In fact, that's why I was, a uh, we were a little late getting started because I was setting up my new toy and, uh, it is delightful, but the wire cutter is a great place. If you're looking for, if you don't know much about a particular product, right. And you want to learn more about it and see things that have been tested. They literally have articles, everything from high end televisions to toilet paper. So the wire cutter, excellent site now owned by media mogul, New York times, a uh, great purchase on their part. The wire cutter, great place for reviews for technology. Awesome. So Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, and I am, uh, well, I'll have some announcements, I think, in the next few weeks that'll be, be interesting, which I'm not going to be talking about now, but uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting couple weeks here. 
And I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, and I would like to remind you that uh, there's still time to get to uh, pick up registration for the NCC conference in Seattle, Washington, um, ncc.org for conference information. I will be there, which is reason enough to come to Seattle. Let's be honest, coffee and knife, right? You can come hang out with me in Seattle. But wonderful uh, uh, speakers, uh, excellent sessions, and an opportunity to connect with some of the, the nicest and brightest educators in in the United States. But that's us. Let's talk about this for a second. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast that happens on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 3 a.m. UTC. If you are so internationally inclined, you can also download this podcast at our website, edtechsr.com. You can go to YouTube and see archives of the video, which, I mean, obviously seeing these mugs is worth going to YouTube to check out those pieces, right? Um, and also, you can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which I don't think includes Spotify. <laughs> So interesting that that happened, that uh, speaking of discovery, um, we really um, uh, welcome your participation. You can either watch us live, you can find us on Twitter, either at EdTechSR or individual handles. And we hope to see you in a future episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Stay safe, stay savvy. Good night.